The word necromancy comes from the Greek words nekros for dead and mantea or divination. So what exactly is necromancy? Let's find out in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. I hope that you're all doing well in as much as you can in these strange times of ours. We are continuing with the witchcraft theme that I put in for June. I've had various requests for other topics as well. So it looks like we'll be having a mythological creatures month at some point in the very near future. So if there's anything particular that you'd like to hear about, please do drop me a line and let me know. So far we've got unicorns and dragons. I'm thinking griffins would be quite cool just because griffins are awesome. And yeah, so let me know if there's anything else that you'd like to know more about. And I'm quite happy to put those in. Oh, maybe do the Hydra. That would be good, wouldn't it? Anyway, this week we are looking at necromancy. And because, you know, all fun for all the family. And we're going to have a look at what it actually is and what it involves and what it is not. Because it is a bit of a a funny one. And yeah, well, let's just jump straight in because I was going to have a proper intro and then I thought I haven't really got anything new to add. So, yeah, we'll just get get involved. And I think I really grasped that most people didn't know what necromancy was or involved a couple of years ago because I've got a series of books, the Magic and Mayhem series. And the first one's called The Necromancer's Apprentice. And it's a retelling of The Sorcerer's Apprentice, but replace the brooms with bloodthirsty mummies. And there's a link to that in the show notes below. And when I brought it out, somebody said that they thought it meant essentially what necrophilia is because they saw necro and romancer in the title and then they put that together and thought it was somebody who slept with the dead and it's just like, no, there's like an actual word for that. And they even suggested I change the title of my book and I just thought, well, no, because it's not my fault that you've misinterpreted the word and there is a necromancer in it, so I'm not going to change the title of the book. But this is where I think some of the confusion comes from because of the fact that people either confuse necromancy with necrophilia or they think that it means actually raising armies of the dead and we'll find out that it's actually neither of them. Spoiler alert. Now as I said at the beginning the word necromancy actually comes from the Greek words necros which means dead and mantea which means divination which is why things like when we did tarot cards are called cartomancy. The mancy part comes from mantea. So if you put dead and divination together you basically get divination by the dead and Peter Maxwell Stewart discusses there were a whole range of magical terms involved in vocabulary around the Greeks and their different practices and he explains that people actually expected this consultation of the dead to be a part of a magical practitioner's practice and yes it does appear in Homer's Odyssey when Odysseus heads to the underworld because he's essentially trying to get home on his odyssey and he's directed by the sorceress Kirka and he uses a spell to speak to the spirits of the dead and she directs him to make this drink for the, the ghosts and the spirits of the underworld which involves the blood of an animal I think it's sheep and he's got to carry them out next to the entrance to the underworld these necromantic rites of his so he makes this drink out of blood and he I think he pours it into the pit 
and all the ghosts come out of the underworld to drink it. And when they do that, Odysseus then gets them to tell him the future and that's how he discovers how to get home. And this is very much divination by the dead in the fact that you have knowledge that you want to gain and you ask the dead for it unlike other forms of divination where obviously you consult something else and again obviously there's an episode a few episodes back where we looked at things like tea leaves and so on obviously tea leaves a little bit less messy than animal blood and interestingly the romans actually thought anyone who died violent or untimely deaths were especially powerful in necromancy so we're going to skip forward from the ancient world to the medieval one and there was obviously necromancy still being written about in the intervening time and a lot of the medieval magic that you get in the European books comes from Arabic texts and scholars would translate these into Latin in the 12th and early 13th centuries and I think this is a point worth making that a lot of what you see in occult books and so on does originally derive from these Arabic texts and so on. Alchemy would be another good example. And the word necromantia was sometimes used to actually translate the Arabic word for magic. Now, Sebastien Geralt actually describes medieval necromancy as this whole big fusion of lots of different practices. So you've got the divination in there, you've got spells, astral magic, animal sacrifices and sympathetic magic. And they're all combined into one to make this practice of necromancy, which does basically make it an amalgam of Greco-Roman paganism, Christian theology, some Jewish worship and Arabic magic. So this is a, a really quite diverse practice in a lot of ways and it should not be confused with witchcraft in any shape or form in this medieval period because the fact that necromancy draws from all these different traditions and so on. And in the late 13th century, necromancy then became a label to lump together any rituals that related to spirits. And this was in contrast to natural magic, which the definitions seem to vary slightly, but it's essentially anything which could relate to the natural world, as you might imagine, and natural sciences and things like that. And so-called image magic, some of which involves the making of talismans and things like that. Now, these particular rituals that, as I say, come under the heading of necromancy were considered illicit. So because of that, the term necromancy then became associated with the conjuration of demons. Now, necromancy was basically bad, if we can use such a term, thanks to what Owen Davies calls, and I quote, the theological view that the raising of the dead was a divine miracle beyond human influence, end quote. And here, the spirits of the dead were then recast as demons. So you weren't consulting the spirits of the dead. You were actually consulting demons who were pretending to be the spirits of the dead. So all this being said, why would you actually take up necromancy? Now, practitioners apparently use demons to affect the will of others, to uncover knowledge or to create illusions. And Sophie Page also adds that they use demons to, quote, move bodies to different locations very, very rapidly, end quote. And I don't know about you, but that does actually sound quite helpful. Now, handbooks actually explained ways to find treasure, attract beautiful women and conjure illusions like massive armies and battles and things like that. So there's a lot to do with trying to find out things that you couldn't know otherwise, like, for example, finding treasure and so on. The Attracting Beautiful Women one sort of falls under the auspices of being able to influence other people. And a lot of the books that I read about weren't quite sure how that really worked. But the bottom line is they thought that they could solve crimes, they could predict the future and find lost items. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who would absolutely love to see a medieval mystery television series where a necromancer poodles around the British Isles solving crimes with the help of the dead. 
Now, Scarlet did also perform angel magic, which obviously, as you can imagine, if necromancy is considered demonic, angel magic was the other end of the spectrum where you were then trying to contact angels. And the thing that I found really funny when I was reading about this is the fact that by summoning demons, necromancer showed, and I quote, a bold and flamboyant disaffection with social and religious norms, end quote. And Richard Kikehefer actually suggests that necromancy was basically a rebellious phase that magicians would go through and then they would grow out of it after a while. Now, when Kikehefer is talking about it, he does point out that some necromancy instructions do actually have comments in the margins, which does kind of imply someone was actually trying them out. But I should point out that despite what detractors claimed about it at the time, necromancy didn't actually involve pacts with the devil. And Gerald actually explains that practitioners would invoke people like Jesus or they'd invoke powers like God and the angels and, and so on to control whichever demons were then summoned. And the power to expect this demonic obedience to whatever it was you were trying to get them to do actually came from your godly powers. So necromancy was heretical, yes, but it wasn't devil worship and it was almost like clerics might be able to use some of these necromantic practices because of their grounding in sort of religious works and so on. Now, are there any famous necromancers? Technically, yes. And obviously, the, the thing that you find in the medieval era is not all of the books have authors. And obviously, you can imagine why you wouldn't want to do that when you've got the Inquisition kicking around. But it's also the fact that you tend to get more stories that are related that come from other texts. So there is one in the Bible, for example, and that's The Witch of Endor technically a necromancer and Saul asks her to conjure up the prophet Samuel because he wants to get advice on dealing with the Philistines and she does so and Samuel issues a prophecy that Saul will die in battle the next day along with his army. Now he does end up quite distressed as you can imagine and his army is defeated and Saul then commits suicide so apparently it's quite one thing to consult the dead and then something else to actually listen to them. And there is an image on my blog, and you can find this if you Google it as well, by Salvatore Rosa from the 17th century called The Shade of Samuel Appears to Saul. And this actually went on to influence how people thought about both necromancers and witches, according to Sophie Page. Now, we can also go to first century Roman literature. And there's a Thessalian witch, Eric Thor, who appears in Pharsalia by Lucan. Now, she built up quite the reputation as a necromancer because she set up shop in a cemetery. And Sextus wanted to know who would win the Battle of Pharsalus and sought out her help to obviously get a bit of a, an inside line into what was going on. Now, Eric thought didn't mess about, so she found a corpse on a battlefield whose lungs and neck remained intact. That will become apparent why you would do that in a moment. Now, she emptied the entire torso of organs and then filled the body with a potion. And according to Lucan's story, this contained, among other things, snake skin, hyena flesh and the foam from rabid dogs. So possibly not the kind of stuff that you would buy on Amazon. And she then went on to call on Hermes, the messenger of the gods, who also acts as a guide to take people to the underworld after they've died. And he then helped her summon the corpse's spirit back and she reanimated his body. And then obviously she asked him what was going to happen. And having this extra awareness of the world beyond, as it were, because of the fact he'd come back from the underworld, he could then pass on the information. And unfortunately for Sextus, the outcome wasn't what he hoped for. And the spirit told him about this impending civil war and alerted him to his own death. And weirdly, Sextus went ahead with the battle anyway, apparently just simply knowing the outcome was enough for him. And Eric Thor later appeared in Dante's Divine Comedy and Goethe's play Faust. And it's possible that many 
sort of conceptions of necromancy actually come from this literary source instead. Now, what did necromancers actually do? We've kind of danced around why they did what they did, but what did they actually do? Now, Nicholas Americus claimed all kinds of madness, which included baptising images, praying to demons, fumigating severed heads, and burning animals and birds. Now, the problem is he burned the necromancy books after he read them, before he then passes information on to others. So we have no way of knowing if the books actually contained any of the stuff that he said they did. That said, Richard Kaikheffer does point out that there's no reason whatsoever to think that Americus actually made any of it up and other texts appear to back it up. I should point out, of course, however, that just because a text says that's what's involved doesn't necessarily mean that's actually what people were doing. Obviously, the book with the comments in the margin would imply that actually, yes, there were. Now, anyway, some rituals required a sacrifice of some description. But remember, sacrifice does not always necessarily mean killing something. So it might mean that you offered a body part and hair and blood seem quite popular choices because obviously they will grow back. Or you might hand over a particular object. And Geralt points out that people actually would use things like flour, ashes, milk or honey as well. So it's basically it's an offering of one thing for something else. In this case, usually knowledge. And necromancers would use circles quite a lot. Although one source actually explained that was more to direct the focus of the ritual than it was to provide any form of protection. And then they would also inscribe linen or parchment with blood. One source also explained that some necromancers would actually write what they wanted on a piece of paper and then they would sort of leave that for the demon to read after they had left the room which is an interesting way of doing it now sophie page theorizes that one reason that this learned magic as you might call it survived was actually because of the spanish inquisition so during the inquisition they actually turned their attention away from the scholars because they kind of intellectualized what was happening as part of necromancy and what these different kinds of magics and, and so on might be and, and kind of almost turned it into a science and the inquisition's focus instead fell on witchcraft and it's largely female practitioners who were more popular i guess in society at the time now obviously these kind of learned practices did continue because the famed elizabethan magician john d our good friend used edward kelly as a medium when speaking to angels so in this case instead of having to summon demons or whatever, you would have your medium acting kind of like a human ventriloquist dummy so that the spirit, or in this case, allegedly angels, could pass on information using the medium's voice box. So does necromancy still exist is probably what you're wondering. Now, after the Renaissance, necromancy quietly disappears from many of the texts and following the Enlightenment, the practice kind of seems to move into other areas, such as spiritualism. And the focus on summoning demons disappears and it goes back to the spirits of the dead. And so the dead come back into necromancy instead. So by then asking the spirits questions, it also then becomes a form of divination again, rather than trying to use necromancy to sort of get what you want or whatever. And in some cases, I think it's not really surprising that necromancy morphed into spiritualism in some quarters. Because the 19th century introduction of cremation in the Western world, for example, made resurrecting the physical body impossible. And by that point, they're not going to use Eric Thor's rather messy exploits. And spiritualism is kind of a cleaner alternative. You could argue that using a Ouija board would be a form of necromancy because you're using it to communicate with the dead to find information that you didn't previously have. 
And there are necromancy practices in Quimbanda, which is an Afro-Brazilian religion, and Bogdan Neogata also relates that people practice what's called the necromantic technique in 20th century Romania. But that version is defined as talking to the dead by Neogata, and the divinatory aspect seems to quietly disappear. Now, largely, the cult of mourning begun during Queen Victoria's reign, in Britain at least, changed the way that I think we think about death in the West and all of a sudden death became something that happened often somewhere else and the body was dealt with in a different way and we approach burial and so on, particularly I'm thinking in the UK here, quite differently. And few would really want to disturb the eternal rest of a loved one and physically opening a grave remains the preserve of forensic specialists. But we do think nothing of leaving messages for our beloved dead. Obviously, we often go and leave flowers for them on anniversaries and so on. And, you know, in in some forms of modern spirituality, people will have things like ancestor altars so that they can still honour ancestors and the people who have gone before. And obviously, spiritualism made popular in the 19th century did give us a new way to talk to the dead. And as Neogata points out, plenty of people continue to enter these trance states where they apparently speak to the dead. And some conversations like that actually take place during sleep. Now, if you are interested in it in the in the sense of spirit-based witchcraft, I would recommend the work of Althea Sebastiani. She does a lot of work around necromancy and working with spirits and so on like that. So I would recommend you check her out and I'll pop the link to her website in the show notes. Now, you might be wondering what my fascination with necromancy is, and I came across it in a programme, I think it was about medieval magic, and I just really liked the idea of talking to the dead, obviously, after they've passed on. And I ended up, as I said at the beginning, writing these books, The Necromancer's Apprentice, book two is The Necromancer's Rogue, and in these, the dead are actually cared for and they're revered as a source of wisdom. So instead of having a series of live advisors, you would go and seek the counsel of the dead because, you know, they've been there, they've done it, they've seen everything. And my necromancer, Euphemie Del Senza, is in charge of the House of the Long Dead, where she then cares for dead royalty. So she's kind of part mortician, part sorceress and part guardian. And she then reaches sort of beyond the veil, as it were, to be able to speak to the dead to get their counsel on different matters. And if you are interested in that, because as I say, it then goes a bit wrong, because obviously I've slammed that together with the sorcerer's apprentice and you know, the dead end up getting raised um, and used a bit like the brooms. So if that does catch your interest, there is a link to the Necromancer's Apprentice below. But that is essentially where we come up to with necromancy. So it has turned from this ancient practice into this form of medieval magic. And now it's got its own, it's taken on almost a life of its own, I think, is a different way of doing this kind of ancestor work and things like that. And obviously I'm using the term that Althea Sebastiani users there in in the sense of ancestors it's kind of those who've gone before so i say i would i would check her out if you're interested in this kind of thing so i hope that that's cleared up some of the misconceptions that no necromancy has nothing to do with physically raising the dead body and it's also got literally nothing to do with necrophilia just in case anyone's still wondering it is very much a consultation of the dead to get their perspective on a situation So I hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode. Next week we are going to be looking at the summer solstice because it is the summer solstice in the northern hemisphere. You might be going, but it's the winter solstice in Australia. Yes, that is true. However, I think most of my listeners are in the northern hemisphere. So we will be looking at the summer solstice and also somebody actually asked me to as well. 
So we'll be having a look at that and then we'll be carrying on with Witchcraft Month after that. As I say, if as ever you've got questions or anything you'd like to hear more about, then do please let me know. If you become a Patreon supporter at the $4 a month tier, if you look at the exclusive episodes that I've done so far, because I'm about to do the next one, which is actually on Bawley Rectory, supposed to be one of the most haunted buildings in England, apparently. Uh, we're going to be looking at that one this month. If you go back to like episode two of the exclusive ones, I did an entire one on spiritualism. So if you are interested in spiritualism, you will get access to that and all the other exclusive episodes if you become a supporter at the $4 a month tier or higher. That being said, though, I hope that you have a marvellous week ahead and I hope that everything is a little bit nicer for you and I will see you next week for our episode on the summer solstice. Cheerio! Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com. And that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images, and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead, and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!